This episode is brought to you by The Mercury Group. The Mercury Group is a supply chain management and consulting firm specializing in global commodity supply chain, collateral and finance management, along with physical inspection, survey, and audit services. Mercury's team has extensive experience in many commodity sectors and provides bespoke services for producers, mining companies, trading companies, banks, and funds involved in commodity trade. Welcome back to Between the Levees. I'm joined today by Mr. Anton Posner, the CEO of the Mercury Group. He is a SUNY graduate from the early 90s, and he is fresh off, I believe, his fourth interview on Bloomberg Television Live, talking about some global shipping issues. So, Mr. Posner, thank you for joining me. Great to be here, Tim. Yeah, love it. Awesome. Well, tell me first, uh, how did you get involved with Bloomberg? Oh, yeah, I think... Uh... It started with a dialogue with uh, some of the Bloomberg, uh, some of the Bloomberg uh, print media people in New York uh, in relation to commodity trade. So it was talking about supply chain issues in relation to steel, non-ferrous metals, aluminum. So started a dialogue with uh, with some of the team, uh, some of the team there. Uh, then we reached out. I had reached out uh, to the. Uh, People that do the uh, one of the uh, Bloomberg podcasts, actually, uh, Tracy Alloway, who is doing a story on the shipping crisis back during the pandemic when all the ships were uh, the container ships were piled up off the coast of California. She was looking to do a story on that. I reached out to her on LinkedIn and connected with her. Then she invited me and Margo uh, to uh, Margo and I to come on the on the um on the uh, Bloomberg podcast, which we did, we did a couple of those, and then the uh, television people picked up uh, picked up from that and invited us on. It was funny the first time that <clears throat> that we were invited on. It wasn't an invite to Anton; it was an invite to Margot and Anton. And I, I, at that first day that they invited us to come on the afternoon show, which was only uh, only a couple of hours or a few hours notice, I I couldn't do it. I had a doctor's appointment, so called Margo up and uh, said, uh, asked her if she wanted to do it. And she said, no way do I want to be on live global TV, Posner, this is all you. So uh, that day I couldn't do it. Uh, and I, I told them that. And a few days later, they invited us to come back on and I was able to do it. So yeah, a couple of years ago. Well, uh, your most recent uh, visit was talking about the Red Sea and the challenges in the Suez Canal. Uh, mm -hmm. Include that one if, uh, if if it applies, but fill me in on what global shipping issues uh, affect the American barging industry. Sure, yeah, certainly big big question, right? There's a lot of a uh, lot of the uh, issues that are going into uh, into that, from trade to supply chain issues to finance issues and government uh, stimulus issues, of course. So there's a wide ranging list of topics. We could probably go go for a few hours just, just in that. But let's start with uh, what's happening in, in the global supply chain industry. Right now, we're seeing delays and problems at the two major choke points in global trade, the Panama Canal due to the drought situation, <clears throat> low water situation there, which is restricting transit through the, through the canal. And what's happening in the Red Sea? What I spoke spoke on Bloomberg TV last week, last week about. So this is changing trade lanes essentially, right? So we're seeing situations where where companies that are planning 
shipments coming into the United States, uh, departing the United States and other markets around the world are having to make adjustments knowing that there's going to be multiple week delays at the Panama Canal, uh, that there's going to be uh, weeks of delays with ships going around the Cape, uh, Cape Good Hope and uh, Africa. Uh, so at this point, we're seeing we're seeing trade lanes shifting. No doubt that's going to have an effect. Uh, these two situations are going to have an effect on what's flowing into the river system, what's uh, looking at uh, alt companies that are looking at alternatives to going into the river system and looking at other other situations or other shipment uh, opportunities to get around these uh, these delays. Who knows, right? You could be looking at uh, when the lakes reopen, uh, shipments going directly into the lakes and uh, as as opposed to going into the into the river system. So these these two problems at these two major canal choke points uh, will certainly have wide ranging effects, not just on the inland river system in the United States, but also on on what's happening all over the place, right? Container lines, uh, making adjustments to what they're what they're currently doing. <laughs> and on top of that, right now, uh, we still have situation in flux on the areas that are near and dear to our hearts at Mercury, the metals and steel markets with tariffs, uh, trade issues, trade disputes, politics that are going in, into this at the moment we have uh, right now a situation where the where the uh, inland um, excuse me import uh, business on both steel and non-ferrous metals aluminum in particular have been anemic uh, at this point uh, going coming into the states and northbound business uh, we're seeing a little bit of uh, optimism on what's happening for uh, what's coming coming ahead for 20, 2024 there's going to be some other uh, other issues there's uh, major uh, domestic aluminum smelter in uh, in the Midwest that uh, there's rumors that it might be shutting down. That's certainly a situation that's going to have an effect um, on the aluminum market in the states, which has always been a natural, uh, larger volume northbound uh, northbound type business. So we'll see what uh, happens with that. There's been some uh, some uh, detente with the European Union on steel tariffs uh, at this point. So that that may uh, may inspire some more um, steel trade in that uh, in that respect. And then there's the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, which is already seeming to have some stimulus effects on American production, uh, creating uh, more opportunities for some for domestic producers in certain commodity uh, businesses that's going to start having some effect on what's flowing uh, flowing on the river system. So uh, a lot of different factors right going on. And then throw into the mix uh, the uh, the situation with uh, with water on the on the inland river system, which seems to be getting uh, getting better at this point. We all held our breath through the fall that we didn't have a repeat of the uh, of the challenges that we had in 2022, which uh, you know, thankfully, thankfully seem to be a little bit more moderated this year, right? Yeah, I'm sure I'm thinking, Tim, of no more, uh, no doubt dozens of more items that we could th add to that list of what's affecting river commerce, right? Maybe we'll have you back on in a few months and talk in depth on a few of those points. But uh, you mentioned low water in the Panama Canal, and of course, your Bloomberg visit was about, among other things, security for the Suez right. Canal. Uh, mm -hmm. What security issues are there over there? And 
for the Panama and Suez canals, uh, if they're say unavailable for use, how much time and and fuel does that cost companies to to not utilize those two options? Yeah. So let's look at uh, look at the situation in the Red Sea and the Suez Suez Canal, which has been most fresh in my mind since uh, since preparing for Bloomberg a couple of few days ago. The situation there is is been very much very much in flux. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Thursday, when I did the did the Bloomberg appearance, uh, it, things were starting to work towards getting a little bit better. Some of the uh, the container lines had started to announce a return of going into the Red Sea and heading towards the canal. And then yesterday, there was uh, two attacks uh, within the same 24-hour period on a Maersk uh, container ship, a Singapore-flagged uh, Maersk container ship, the there was a missile attack on the ship by uh, by Yemeni uh, armed groups, and then then uh, Yemenis uh, sent four small patrol craft or small four small attack craft rather to go assault the ship. Maersk had a an armed security team aboard the ship and and uh, tried to repel the attack. Uh, with apparently uh, fire coming from the uh, from the security team on board the ship at the same time they put out the call to the uh, international coalition uh, American uh, the US Navy responded with uh, with uh, helicopters with helos that they sent in to respond the Yemenis uh, started firing at the Navy aircraft and the US Navy responded by sinking in three of the small boats and killing the uh, the crews aboard those uh, aboard those boats, the last one uh, escaped. So this potentially is escalating uh, the situation. The uh, the coalition so far, led by uh, United States and some some our NATO allies, have not taken the step of of attacking the Yemeni missile and drone uh, originating positions in Yemen uh, at this point. So it's been a very measured response, just responding to uh, what's been what what assaults have been coming. But uh, so the question is, what's next right now that now that uh, Yemeni blood has been spilled and, and there's been a direct conflict with the U.S. Navy, uh, what's coming next? Right. I'm starting to be of the opinion that it may get worse before it gets better. I hope I'm wrong on that. But it doesn't seem like it's uh, de-escalating uh, as much as I would have uh, would have hoped uh, several days ago. So, um, always of the uh, always uh, also making the statement of you know think about how many larger conflicts globally started with maritime incidents to both merchant and military shipping. Right, you go back to the Gulf of Tonkin to the Maine and Cuba to the Lusitania. Right. So there's not a great track record of maritime incidents leading leading not to <laughs> or not leading to escalation rather. Right. So uh, so it's always a passion, always a passion point on uh, what on something. So God forbid a, a, a merchant ship is uh, is severely disabled, destroyed, right, sank. Or something along those lines, right? What are we necessarily? What are we going to see? 
happening. And as far as these these Yemeni efforts, we'll call them, is it is it terrorism? Is it piracy? Are they trying to capture this cargo, hold hostage the people? Is it all about money? I mean, yeah, it's all of the above. It seems like, uh, and I think that there's not necessarily a very very well thought out strategy on the side of uh, the of the Yemeni uh, Houthi groups, but I could. You know, take it for what it's worth, right? I'm not a geopolitical analyst. I'm a logistics guy. In the end of the day, uh, however, we know from what uh, what transpires, right, with these groups, as we've seen in uh, in other parts of the world, right, there's is not exactly a tight command and control structure. So you have different factions within these groups that have different different agendas. So the ones that want to capture the ships, uh, like was uh, done to a car carrier. Uh, bring it into a Yemeni port, hold it hostage uh, until there's some cessation of hostilities in uh, Israel and Gaza, uh, or there's just a will, uh, desire to inflict pain and kill people. Uh, there's, I think there's a multitude of, of goals out there by different factions within, within these groups at this point. So I'm not quite sure that there's one authority to even negotiate with that that uh, could put a stop put a stop to this at this point and then you add what's happening with Iran and the support uh, there uh, the attack on a uh, chemical tanker in the uh, Arabian Sea off the coast of India and a whole nother uh, whole nother uh, aspect to the mess too well looking over LinkedIn your, your profile on LinkedIn it, it looks like uh, about a 32 year career Five years as a third mate on ocean vessels, of course, a SUNY graduate, as I mentioned, and a lieutenant in the Navy Reserve. Is that all accurate? Cor uh, correct. Although my uh, my merchant uh, as a as a merchant marine officer, as a licensed officer, I didn't sail as an officer. So came out of uh, out of New York Maritime College at Fort Schuyler with my third mate's license and promptly stayed ashore. So I have had the license. Um, so licensed officer, did my four years at uh, Maritimes and Cadet, and uh, including training cruises and some sea time on uh, merchant ships as a cadet. Uh, but uh, Tim, I always tell people, I said, I realized at that point I didn't have any salt in my veins. I was good staying shoreside. One of the jokes I always make, too, is that I determined I was better navigating a cocktail party in London than navigating a ship to get to London. So... <laughs> I imagine that'd be just about the same way. But in in all that in all that training, education, and, and military service, uh, mm. what sort of training what was made available to you, or that that you uh, you went through to prepare for things like piracy mm. um, that was going on across the world? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question and and one that I haven't been asked before. And it and I got have to say it's probably. Not much, but it's but, but the answers will be interesting, right? So, uh, during at school, talk uh, back back at New York Maritime College, piracy was always an issue in certain parts of the world, the Straits of Malacca near Singapore, uh, certainly off the coast of Somalia, with the situation going into the deteriorating political situation in Somalia. That was transpiring while uh, while we were in school and training as uh, as merchant marine officer merchant marine officers. Really, as from the commercial standpoint, there's not much you can do, right? These are unarmed merchant ships. We were taught uh, at that point, uh, basically, you, you put out the call for uh, help. You don't, you don't have the capacity on board a ship to fight back, nor were we trained to, to, uh, to fight back. So 
uh, basically going through uh, going through areas where where piracy is always an issue. You'd put out more more uh, of the crew on watch to look for uh, what might be coming at the ship. You'd uh, put uh, fire hoses alongside the railings on the ship to be able to try to repel uh, boarding potentially. Uh, but beyond that, unless unless you're the ship operator and ship owner deployed a an armed security crew aboard the ship, there's not much more that a merchant crew can do. You know, these are not exact. These are whatever uh, whatever end of the spectrum Navy SEALs are on. Let's say that merchant marine crew would be on the far the 180 degrees uh, different in terms of capabilities to to handle that. So. <laughs> yeah, couldn't be more couldn't be more different. And then switching over to my my time in the Navy Re Navy Reserve, I was a I was a Merchant Marine Reserve uh, officer. The, the Navy paid for part of uh, my time at Maritime College. I owed them six years uh, as a reserve officer. We gave them uh, gave them eight years. I decided to actively join a unit, and and uh, and interestingly enough, the unit uh, that I was. That I joined uh, the two units that I was were in were called naval control of shipping units. So, these units uh, that I joined as a junior officer were created to uh, to protect merchant shipping and coordinate merchant shipping during a time of war. However, we're talking about the early 1990s, right? I graduated in 1992, got my commission in 1992. The Navy, the military department of defense at this point was still very much on a cold war Soviet union footing. Uh, the Soviet union, uh, lowered its flag over the Kremlin when I was, uh, on the bridge of the USNS Sealift Arabian Sea, uh, crossing the Gulf of Mexico in, uh, December 31st, 1991. So I remember listening to the radio on board this, uh, Navy tanker on our way, uh, Way back carrying jet fuel uh, from carrying jet fuel down to uh, Navy base in Rodman, Panama. So this was a time still when the Navy was still focused and the military was still focused on the Soviet Union and large global conflict. So our naval control of shipping units were still uh, still at that point functioning under the premise of convoys, right? World War II style convoys. We uh, did a couple of weeks in Norfolk at the Naval Base in Norfolk and uh, anti-submarine warfare school, right? We know the Houthis do not have an effective submarine force. So we're talking about a completely different type of threat these days. And of course, I've been out of uh, the Navy Reserve since uh, 2000, 2001 uh, timing. So a lot, no doubt, has happened in 24 years uh, since then. But still, when I was there, it was still focused on, on large-scale conventional uh, conventional adversaries that had submarines that were attacking uh, merchant shipping, and the, the premise was still uh, organizing convoys, right, at, at that point to control merchant shipping in a, in a big way. So that's not today. Right. Although we're seeing some elements of that, interestingly enough, in the Red Sea, maybe not large scale convoys of uh, multiple ships. Right. But escorts uh, going through this. This has some elements of our uh, World War II sea lift right there to avoiding threats. And these threats are again are not coming from 
enemy submarines, but rather drones and missile and uh, ground launch missile strikes on uh, commercial shipping. So, yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting, right? Uh, that uh, that background um, there. However, it was the reserves. It wasn't uh, hardcore military time, and I'd be uh, I'd certainly be remiss if I didn't uh, emphasize, right, that uh, as a reservist, it wasn't uh, wasn't exactly an enormous amount of uh, of uh, hardcore military time. <laughs> well, jumping back, of course, to the industry within the levies that this podcast normally chronicles, mm -hmm. uh, I've hosted a couple of SUNY grads, and it was confirmed that. In that curriculum, hmm. there is very little, if any, mention of the inland river yeah. shipping uh, industry. Mm -hmm. um, what would you envision if if you went to SUNY with a presentation today to say, hey, can we get some of the, the coursework focused on the inland rivers? Mm -hmm. uh, how would you suggest they approach that? Yeah, I think, uh, and that's a great question, Tim, right? It was certainly, it's something that uh, Margo, my business partner, right, and I have spoken about extensively coming out of school and a, a few years later, after graduation, going into uh, <clears throat> going into a business that was so heavily focused on the Inland River system, it was remarkable uh, to me, Margo eventually, when she came into the business, uh, how little guidance and understanding we had about the inland river system and barge uh, barge freight in general and what's happening and how important it is and how vital it is. So I think to be as blunt as possible on this, the, the maritime schools, whether it's New York Maritime or the other state schools or Kings Point, uh, and, and possibly some of them are implementing this. So I don't want to blanket it uh, as if they're not doing anything. Maybe they are. But they there really needs to be at the very least a course on inland river commerce and trade and operations right to some extent to we had some classes on tug handling and uh and operations to some to some extent but it was nowhere near the understanding of what's happening on the river system I and mean, it was it was eye-opening when I was a young 25-year-old and first going into uh, into a company that that had an extensive uh, river and barge barge uh, operations business, barge uh, business. So yeah, there needs to be a class. And I've spoken at, uh, at SUNY Maritime, at Maritime College, at, and I've spoken at King's Point over the years, although it's been a bunch of years since the last time I did it. But during those times when I spoke at the business of shipping classes, or logistics classes, I've always brought I always brought an element to it of the inland logistics, barge system, barge and river system. Talked extensively about that during those times when I've lectured uh, lectured at those classes. And it's always been something that's uh, that's been eye opening. Um, you know, add that to uh, some fun logistics and trade stories, and and you really get a class going. I always always enjoyed speaking. Uh, speaking at the schools because you'd get such great response and afterward as the class was ending there'd be a line of uh, cadets or midshipmen waiting to come up and, and talk afterward that had a, a had a lot of interest in in being in, in a, a part of the business right that they really didn't have a lot of exposure to in school so I always joke uh, to Tim that uh, my retirement job is 
is going to be teaching a class in logistics, supply chain, global trade on, I'll let my, let my beard grow long and, and find some university in the Caribbean and be like, uh, you know, two day, two days of a professor and, and sit on the beach the rest of the time. So teaching some supply chain class and just telling stories of uh, crazy metals traders and problems on ships and barges for the, for, you know, for the rest of my days. <laughs> Sounds like a hell of a goal. I hope you do uh, right. realize that. And maybe one day I'll sit in on that class remotely or something. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> of course, I think it's you, your LinkedIn profile showed SUNY from 88 to 92. Fill me in right. on your life up until 1988 and what, what mm. drew you to, to that line of work? Yeah. Uh, so it, back in high school, I was laser focused on being a regular uh, Navy officer. I was looking, uh, I was focused on uh, going regular Navy and being active, being active duty. So my goal when I was in high school and I was never, never a great student, I was a very B, B average student in school. So I wasn't going to the, wasn't going to the Naval Academy. I wasn't getting a, an ROTC scholarship or anything. But uh, one of my neighbors uh, growing up uh, here on Long Island was a was in uh, at Maritime New York Maritime College. So I learned about the school through through her, and really interested me. Visited the school, uh, totally uh, fell for it. I thought it was a great opportunity. Again, at this point, I was still focused on being a regular uh, active duty naval officer. So I was very much under the under the premise of I want to travel and see the world and. Uh, go to sea and uh, do that. So, um, so I enrolled at uh, Maritime College first year there. I was still focused on going uh, regular Navy. I joined the uh, NROTC, Navy ROTC unit uh, at, at the school and participated in that um, at the time. It was about halfway through my four years of Maritime College that I figured that I realized I didn't want to, I didn't think that uh, being an active duty naval officer was was for me and that I was that I was more going to be more focused on the business of shipping however I still wanted to serve uh, I, the Navy was paying for part of my uh, part of my tuition at Maritime College so I took uh, I I decided to go with the reserve commission instead of an active duty uh, active duty commission and that's when I, I started focusing on the commercial aspects and determine trying to figure out what I was going to do. I, I can't say that I had it. I it was uh, exactly uh, clear on that, but I knew that I wanted to go into business uh, business aspect and stay shoreside uh, at that point. So get to senior year, I uh, I uh, that's when I. I went on board that that ship I referred to earlier, the USNS Sealift Arabian Sea, for Christmas and New Year's break. So it was two weeks. I flew down to uh, Houston, got on board uh, this Navy uh, Navy um, Military Sealift Command uh, tanker. We carried a cargo. Of, I was a cadet at that time, right? Uh, carried a cargo of jet fuel to uh, to the Navy base of Rodman, Panama, on the uh, Pacific side of the Panama Canal. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, it learned learned a lot. Uh, and uh, Christmas at sea in the middle of the uh, Gulf of Mexico, with uh, with the uh, MSC uh, contracted crew aboard the ship, 
fantastic, uh, interesting couple of days in uh, Panama City outside the <laughs> outside of the uh, Navy base there in Robin, and then the uh, trip back as a cadet being sent down into the uh, empty tanks to sop up remnants of jet fuel. I still think I must have lost how many brain cells right at this point. It probably explains a lot. How many brain cells breathing in those uh, jet fuel fumes from those few days, uh, from that day of uh, cleaning up the, the, the hold. But that two weeks aboard the USNSC Lift Arabian Sea when I was a cadet uh, at, as a senior at school, that's when I, that's what I really knew. I said, you know, I'm going to be better better staying ashore. But I'm so glad I did this because I wanted to see what it was like to be in a real uh, merchant marine operated, uh, in this case, Navy owned, uh, Navy owned ship. And um, as I got closer to graduation, I started applying, uh, looking at uh, what jobs to apply for. And I got the first job that I applied for working as a, uh, as an operations, uh, operations kid or port captain for a container line. Neptune Orient Lines, NOL, which is now part of uh, American President Lines. They acquired American President Lines and changed their name, so EPL. So I was uh, stowing, at 22 years old, I was stowing uh, container ships, going into Manhattan to the uh, office uh, every day, five days a week, and then spending my weekends often in Port Newark, uh, living aboard uh, the ships when they were in port, and uh, planning the container stow on the ships, dealing with the longshoremen and the stevedoring. Uh, stevedoring management, uh, planning out the stowage for the ships for the entire East Coast run, Halifax, Norfolk, Charleston, uh, so forth. So it was uh, it was a lot of responsibility, shockingly so, for a 22-year-old. This is the time before computers were stowing container ships. So I had, uh, I had a pack of colored pencils, and I would sit there and use those colored pencils to plan which discharge port the containers were going to be uh, stowed uh, on the ship, on the ship, and and it was done very much eyeballing. It was don't put too much tonnage to the starboard side. Don't put too much to the port. Try not to keep the ship too heavy by the bow, right? And uh, it was very much uh, uh, you know after after taking uh, two semesters of naval architecture in school and understanding how complicated uh, stability and ship stability is on a on a ship. Here I was hand I was handed colored pencils and told to eyeball the stuff. <laughs> so I got to say it was uh, it was it was a lot for it for a 22 year old, but I had a great time. I did it. Rode one of the container ships down down the coast to meet my colleagues in Norfolk and uh, Charleston. I chose and Tim, I chose the wrong time. It was December 1992. There was this nor'easter steaming, basically barreling up the East Coast that I had no idea. I got on board the MV Neptune Pearl in Port Newark and we sailed right into it. December, around December 7th, 1992, was that it was referred to as the storm of the century because it slammed into New York, put Wall Street down in lower Manhattan underwater. Well, as a freshly minted merchant marine officer and uh, fresh out of school and, and not, even, not even a seagoing uh, officer, here I was sailing through a horrendous, uh, horrendous storm on a Singapore flag container ship going down. This only reinforced my decision about staying shoreside, mind you, right? <laughs> without, but, a, without a doubt. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say so. It's a very long-winded uh, long answer to your question, right? <laughs> no problem at all. That's what these are for. Um, yeah. What was my question? 
Oh, uh, what was the draw to the Navy? What was, or your parents, uh, what did your parents do for a living? What was any family in the industry? How did you yeah, so, follow in that path? Excuse me. Yeah. Um, no, no one in the maritime industry or the Navy, my father <clears throat> was a world war II veteran. He was artillery in Patton's army battle of the bulge vet. So he, he thought it, uh, he, he got a good chuckle when I told him I was, uh, going into, going into the Navy, but he was an army, army corporal. Yeah. Battle of the bulge vet, as I said, so very proud of what, uh, what he did in world war, world war two. Uh, my mother was, uh, was a New York State judge, uh, workers' compensation court judge. She was a lawyer. She she was excited. Uh, she loved the fact that I wanted to go uh, into the Navy and then eventually into the reserves. And uh, when uh, I when I decided I was going to say shoreside, she was uh, nudging me to go to law school to become a maritime and admiralty attorney. Right? She thought that that would be fantastic. And, and I have to say, I think uh, all of us that are in the supply chain business feel like we're uh, battle doing fighting legal battles all the time. So, um, so I can't say that I've uh, avoided, uh, avoided so much of the law aspects, but yeah, no, mar no maritime or Navy background in the family. The draw for me was, was mostly about travel. Uh, and I still, you know, at that point uh, I wanted to serve and I thought I wanted to see the world and interesting. I think it's fantastic that in my current capacity, as uh, in supply chain uh, business, particularly in the commodities focused supply chain business that I'm in, I've gotten to see a lot. Uh, I really enjoy the aspect of dropping myself into a conference in, uh, in Hong Kong or running around the port cities in, uh, in China or you know, heading to, uh, heading to uh, Barcelona for aluminum event and uh, going to visit uh, clients in northern Norway up uh, near the Arctic Circle that are producing steel. So so I've really I still have that bug of wanting to see more of the world. Uh, and I think that draw that connect that that ability to connect a business, a job, a career, and do what I love right, uh, is fantastic, is fantastic. So it may not be in the capacity of being, uh, being a executive officer or a commanding officer on board a Navy destroyer. That's okay. I knew that that was not that I thought that that might've been my calling, but it wasn't where I'm at right now. And, and it goes back to that joke I made, right? I know I'm better navigating a cocktail party in London than navigating a ship to get to London. My navigation skills, not, <laughs> hey i made it through i got my license i was able to able to accomplish the uh you know pass the navigation uh u.s coast guard license license exam but let's just say that um you know i'm not the guy that you definitely want on board uh, up on the bridge uh in charge of navigation at this point <laughs> well anton is uh the mercury group your sort of brainchild i do i'm sure margo and i discussed that when we when we met uh, a few months ago but refresh my memory how did the mercury group come to be sure i'll give you yeah some of the background so and it's uh margo and anton uh creation very much so nowhere near uh just an anton creation so the um 
after after school, had a few different uh, jobs in supply chain industry. Margot and I uh, worked together at a couple of uh, couple of companies uh, throughout our career. So she's been a great friend and partner for uh, for many many years, right, going back to uh, the mid nineteen nineties uh, when Margot uh, graduated and joined uh, the company that I was working for at the time, which was another container line, Canada Maritime Agencies. Anyway, um, 2010, uh, kind of rewind back to 2010, we were at another company, we had the opportunity to create the US operation of a Singaporean logistics and London Metal Exchange warehousing company called CWT Group. Uh, CWT Group, again, was a Singapore publicly traded uh publicly traded uh, logistics and commodity logistics and warehousing company. They wanted to set up their own operations in North America uh, to focus on London Metal Exchange warehousing, which is folk, which is uh, the where metals are stored that are that are traded uh, openly on the exchange in London uh, and also a, a robust logistics business. So Margo and I started CWT Commodities USA as a joint venture in 2010 with CWT Singapore. Margo and I had minority ownership in the company. The Singaporeans uh, had majority. We we worked, uh, tried to build that business for about seven years. It was successful in a lot of ways, not successful in some ways, on, particularly on the warehousing, warehousing side. But fast forward to 2017, 2018, uh, CWT Singapore was being acquired by mainland Chinese company HNA, uh, which has had massive financial trouble now. But anyway, at the time, this is a, a time where Margo and I knew that we didn't want to have a joint venture with a mainland Chinese company. The Singaporean company was fine, but uh, mainland Chinese company, boy, were, were we right. After we got out of there, HNA, uh, which owned a large stake in Hilton Hotels and owns Hainan Airlines and owns Flexport Airport Services, uh, not Flexport, um, oh, uh, we'll forget the name of the company, but the airport services, they own Seaco Containers, right? It's a very broad um, uh, conglomerate, but boy, they got into big financial trouble after and after we departed. So it made it, made it look like we knew exactly what we were doing when we decided we needed to get out of there, however. We had no idea how bad it was going to be. Anyway, this is a time where, where we were trying to figure out what to do next. We had a great client uh, following and uh, great client partners, uh, companies, trading companies that we were working closely with. And Margo and I, uh, after a short stop at, a, at a, another company that we thought would make sense to bring our business to, but it wasn't a good fit, we decided that... Uh, that the entity didn't need to be somebody else's entity that we merged into. Our clients at this point were saying, telling us, uh, why, why don't you just start your own business at this point? It's Margot and Anton we want to work with. It's not some other name. Who cares what your email address is, right? As long as it's you guys. So at that point, we real, it was finally the realization that we were, we were the reason that people were sticking with us, right? Not, not because it's a bigger, bigger company. So we established Mercury Resources and it went into, uh, it started actual operations in the spring of 2018. And uh, all our clients came with us, every single one, every client that uh, 
we had uh, prior to Mercury Resources formation was on board uh, when we started up uh, Mercury operations. So you know, looking back to those uh, days in the spring of uh, 2018, right, it was uh, basically a business of uh, Margot and Anton working from our home offices, just the two of us and getting things set up and setting up uh, rail freight accounts and getting you know, moving barge line contracts uh, over under under uh, our clients' names, but with Mercury managing managing them at this point, uh, we we grew the business really out of nothing. You know, we're talking about spring of 2018, a bank account that uh, pretty much had nothing in it <laughs> to uh, an organization now where we're about 10 people in uh, various points in the Americas and uh, expanded the business into uh, a few different business units as Mercury Resources, which is the core inland logistics uh, business that uh, and that maintains the partnerships that we have on the ocean freight side with our partners at uh, IFCOR Galbraiths for bulk freight and Mallory Alexander on container freight. Uh, and then there's uh, Mercury Transportation Solutions, MTS, which uh, we partnered with one of our old colleagues, uh, Brian Kosteff in Houston and BMAC uh, Logistics in Pittsburgh to create a truck truck freight uh, focused unit and integrated logistics unit. Um, that's Mercury Transportation Solutions. And that's been a fantastic uh, success. Brian is a great uh, partner and uh, excited about where we're going with that. We're um, really doing all kinds of uh, different aspects of supply chain under under the Mercury Transportation Solutions uh, joint venture that we created with, uh, with Brian and with uh, BMAC uh, Logistics, including rail freight, uh, containerized freight, uh, other ocean freight aspects. And then the other one is Mercury Inspections, which is our collateral management control uh, business. It's a, uh, certainly a passion of uh, Margo and mine uh, to, uh, Margo and I to, uh, to bring sanity to, uh, to the commodity trade where there's been an enormous amount of fraud. Uh, that's a whole nother episode, Tim, right? I could talk about a, the, the, the fraud that's gone on with, uh, with fake shipments and fake cargoes. Uh, Traffigur is gigantic fake uh, nickel scam that uh, transpired earlier in 2023, right? With a thousand containers of rocks instead of nickel. What we're doing with Merc Mercury Inspections is it's, we're, we're working for several banks uh, providing audit services and uh, services to go out and have our subcontractors measure the height and angle of repose of coal stockpiles to verify tons that are in stock. We're reviewing trade conditions and documentation with our bank and finance clients to make sure that uh, what's transpiring is actually uh, actually not uh, not uh, or actually let's say passing the smell test, right? But it also encompasses sending inspectors out to count uh, count steel billets or bundles of aluminum and bundles of copper, verifying what's in stock when the banks are pro are providing physical finance for those uh, those commodities. So working on expanding that uh, mercury inspections uh, business also. So. Yeah, that's a quick overview uh, overview of the Mercury Group and how we, at least how we started it. But we're, what, how many years on now uh, from 2018, coming up on six years in the in the spring, and uh, it's grown fantastically or organically, right? Without acquisitions, 
without uh, invest without taking uh, without uh, raising equity or raising uh, debt, uh, it's been been great, right? To to be able to do that just organically, just through hard work and trust, it's been key. And we're so I would say uh, we're a fiduciary for our clients. That's the best way to describe what we do. We're not a broker. We don't take positions on barge contracts and and uh, and then add mystery margins on top. We, when we're working for our clients, we are an, a fiduciary and we're an advocate for our clients. It's our job then to shop the market, to create competition, to make help our clients and guide them to making decisions on supply chain matters that's in their best interest. So uh, we we very much take take the responsibility as a fiduciary and use that financial term fiduciary um, very specifically, right? Because we're there rep- only representing our clients and not uh, not as we like to say the mystery margin brokers that uh, that just try to you know hide margins in in everything. Not our style. Well, focusing on the uh, the barge industry, the inland barge industry mm-hmm. here. Um, fill me in on the process, I guess. If if a customer calls and says, I have 80,000 tons of cargo X and I need it imported mm-hmm. to the U.S., put in barges and delivered. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any any stake in the ownership of the cargo itself? Or are you strictly managing the, the supply chain? Yeah, so strictly managing the supply chain. And this is a good example where our fiduciary role comes into play. So Immediately at that point, where if let's say that we're working with that that theoretical client on uh, on help with their stevedoring operations in the Gulf and barge freight, so we're immediately working with them to first first things first is to provide that client with some initial estimates, right? So uh, getting a quick read on stevedoring costs for transfer, let's say from bulk carrier into barges. Fairly straightforward. A couple of phone calls, easy to do that. Uh, a few phone calls to uh, to our barge line partners, then to get uh, to get some ballpark indications from them. So we will typically start off with wanting to get our our client an estimate of where things stand, and that might be a range, right? So maybe you know two to two two to two dollars and fifty cents a ton transfer ship to barge in the New Orleans area and let's say 20 you know in the low we might say uh in the low 20s per short ton for barge freight to uh the Ohio, upper Ohio River right Cincinnati to uh um I don't know you know East Liverpool uh, uh range and giving that guidance but more importantly at this point too is where we want to want to give guidance to our clients and the particularly the ones that are not accustomed to to barge freight, but we also give them trade guidance here on where to build in extra cushion and uh, miscellaneous costs into the calculation, right? So just putting down the stevedoring cost and the barge freight rate in and of itself for them to digest is not sufficient, right? We also need to give them guidance on the terms, right? If they're, uh, let's say the terms on the vessel. So if they're handling the ocean freight on the vessel, if we're not handling it, those vessel discharge terms 
need to correspond as best possible to what the stevedores can guarantee. And often they're not back to back. Most often they're not back to back. And therefore there's a, an opportunity for, uh, for cost, extra cost in there, whether it's the time uh, that the notice of readiness is going to be accepted and when time is going to start to count on the ship. Uh, that's a big part of it too. Uh, also, how many tons per day the stevedores are willing to guarantee, how many workable holds there's going to be on the ship. So there's a multitude of, of issues that need to be addressed to properly guide a client on what's and, and hold their hand so that they're not uh, not taken by surprise on what could be pretty significant money items there. So we do that. It's going the extra mile to play that fiduciary role and say, it's not just the rates, it's also the terms here. And those terms that if they're not analyzed, negotiated properly, they can have pretty significant monetary effects on the P&L for that particular trade, right? And going to the barge side too, it's also reminding the client and insisting that they keep a buck or whatever, right, in the calculations for probable barge demerge, right? If we're talking about a large slug of barges, uh, five, ten, you know, five, seven barges arriving upriver at the same time, uh, there's going to be a delay, right? And there's going to be days, extra days used. So working with our clients to have them make them understand how to properly uh, put a P&L together for a physical trade is how we look at it. It's not just quoting rates, right? But it's protecting the P&L. And so a phrase I like to use often uh, with our clients, it's we're here to protect the P&L, protecting the P&L. So once estimates are put together and the client sees that uh, that it makes sense and the trade potentially makes sense, then we'll go and work on firming things up. Then it's going into the market. Then it's asking stevedores to quote uh, quote the business based on a specific tonnage, timing, terms, the T's, right? Tonnage, timing, terms. Always another phrase, right? Man, I'm getting old, Tim. I got a lot of Got a lot of phrases at this point in my life, apparently. But uh, and then on the barge freight side, right, we're determining okay which barge lines make sense for this business. There's the barge lines that like the Ohio River, the barge lines that like the Upper Mississippi River, the barge lines that like Tennessee River or Mobile Origin, right, which is uh, uh, others uh, that are not your New Orleans focused uh, barge lines. So so it's it's then putting out RFQs to those barge lines, but we're transparent. We always keep our management fee separate. Uh, barge brokers love to add margins on top of barge freight. And then when there's fuel surcharge, they get a fuel surcharge on their margin, right? We don't play those games. <laughs> Think about that, right? Barge broker sticks a $2, a buck or two in the uh, barge freight. And then when there's a 24% fuel surcharge, they're getting 24% on their margin also. That's not going to buy fuel. That's going to buy Starbucks. So, <laughs> so let's, uh, you know, being a fiduciary also means, means uh, protecting our clients from uh, that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of um, dishonesty, shall we say, right? So, um, and, and so that's our job, right, to go out and solicit offers, and not only to provide guidance just purely on rates, but also on service and quality, quality of service and the ability for, uh, to get, uh, to get things done, right? If we see that there's a barge line or a stevedore that we know is having problems, I don't care if they're 25 cents a ton lower, 
we're going to need to we need to address that. So we don't want to guide our clients into uh, into a situation where they're where they made just a pure monetary decision, but uh, but now ending up with um, with a problem that's going to cause more monetary you know uh, problems. One final simple, assuredly simple question <clears throat> to finish this up. But uh, if you can paint me a picture of a current snapshot of the import-export environment in that of the Gulf as it pertains directly to the barging industry and what the outlook may be for the near future. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's a it's the time of year, right? We're working on finalizing contracts. We're seeing, let's say, in the Gulf, in the New Orleans area at the moment, uh, talking about dry bulk and break bulk, uh, break bulk goods and commodities, right, which is our, our area. So keeping away from the liquid side, which is not our area of expertise. But um, on the break bulk side in the New Orleans area, uh, in Mobile, in the, in the Gulf, there's a lot of competition on the stevedoring side. It's pretty, it's healthy competition at this point, not necessarily, not necessarily a healthy situation. Um, there's probably too much capacity at the moment when it comes to stevedoring operations in some, some parts some parts of the Gulf, so we're seeing hungry. Uh, we're seeing hungry uh, stevedores there. Um, the import uh, it goes back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, right? Import steel, metals, uh, break bulk uh, goods has been has been uh, you know not not a stellar twenty twenty three. So uh, right now there's there's still more capacity out there, and we're seeing some some capacity being removed. From the markets, a uh, large stevedore in New Orleans, for example, ceased uh, business operations in 2023. Um, so we're seeing very much a situation. That's that's a good way of describing uh, that situation. The dry bulk, uh, dry bulk stevedoring operations market in the in the Gulf a little bit different. And say in New Orleans, the dry bulk stevedoring operations, which are focused on, of course, both import and export, are healthier. There's less less competition there's less players in that that market um so there's there's a healthier market for those uh for those players uh in that market and it, it means more more work to uh to really put something competitive together for for our clients which is fine um barge freight market is working on northbound uh contracts for 20 for 2024 we're seeing some softening uh, in these uh, in these markets, um, there's been an ability to uh, to work uh, rate rates down from initial initial first round numbers that were put out by uh, by the barge lines. So it's certainly not it, it can't say it's a situation where the market has collapsed. No, not by any means, right? But it's it's a market where it's not as not as strong as no doubt as the barge lines would like. I'm sure you know. You ask any anyone from a barge line. Him, right, you want it to be a situation where where the book was already full and you didn't have to you know negotiate. But it's but it, every year it's different, right? It's a give and take. There's going to be another year where it's going to be a market where it's going to be stronger, uh, and it's uh, so so we have to be uh, out front on what's happening and intelligence on uh, on what's going on in the market and identifying who are the players that are going to again not not just low cost, but also quality too, right? And that that, uh, that could provide the service uh, service properly. So um, 
Yeah, it's a quick, certainly a you know, quick snapshot uh, at this point um, in those very you know specific uh, dry bulk and break bulk uh, markets in the river in the river system. But yeah, so seeing a situation where where we're able to be a little bit more effective uh, right now if we're, we put the work into into uh, fine tuning, shall we say, right on on freight. Well, Anton, thank you very much for your time this morning. That will wrap this up. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Talk about some more topics at length. How's that sound? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. You know, I could talk. <laughs> Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Tim. This has been a production of Where You At Studios, LLC.